I'm Pastor Mike Winger, and this is Bible Thinker, the program dedicated to thinking biblically about everything. So here we are in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8, is where we're picking up. 1 Peter 3, 8. And we're changing from uh, where Peter's been talking about specific areas of submission, governments, um, you know, to authorities in our lives, bosses, that type of thing. And then finally in marriage, and he talks about the role of the wife. And then we did a whole thing on the role of the wife and then the role of the husband. But now we're moving away from the like sort of life scenario specific advice to just this sort of character advice. Like Christ-likeness is the deal. General rules of character because we need this. I'm actually really blessed by how often in the epistles issues of just general character goodness come up. Um, I think it's really important for us because too often we can forget the heart of what it means to follow Jesus and that it means a submission of my very being, my person, my personality even unto Christ for his will and for his plan. And so here we are, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. It says, finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another, love as brothers, be tenderhearted, be courteous. Now the statements, all of you, I think it's because he's shifting gears. If you, if you remember, you know, he's husbands this, wives this, you know, masters this, servants this, all that kind of thing. So now he's like, all of you. Now let's encompass everybody. This applies to everyone to be of one mind, whether you're the government person who works in government and you're this authority person, or if you're just a citizen, or if you're the master, the bond servant, you're the wife, you're the husband, we're to be of one mind. In Christianity, it was interesting to me when I just had gotten saved and started going to church and I found that I had fellowship with people who I never would have had any connection with for any reason. (laughs) I would not have enjoyed their friendship. I would have thought they were strange. I would have distanced myself from them just because of my lack of familiarity with that different person. Uh, But God brings us together regardless of our social status, our gender roles, um, our our rank in society, uh, any of those things, they just don't matter. Age, it just doesn't matter. I find that in Christ, I am just drawn to people who love Jesus, who just have a genuine, humble, not arrogant love. You know what I mean? The arrogant love for Jesus where it's like, I love Jesus. But what I really mean is I'm a really great Christian. <laughs> but I just mean people who love the Lord, where, where God is their number one priority and and just honoring him. That's the top of the list for them. And you're just drawn to those people. That there's a oneness of mind that we get to have. And there is one thing that unites us in Christ. And when we have that thing uniting us, that's what we call fellowship. There's something nourishing about fellowship. I don't want to go long without it. Um, not at all. I think, though, that this word, be all of you be of one mind, and that's one word. Be of one mind is, represents one Greek word. Greek words are really funny in that, in that I won't give you a Greek lesson, but just it's a fun thing to know is that they will just put so much meaning in one word, but it's not as though it's this little word like oi, and it means all this wonderful stuff. Rather, the word just keeps getting longer and longer and longer and like seven, eight, nine syllable words <laughs> so that they can represent, you know, the, the tense of when it happened and how many people it represents and with this flavor to it. So, When there's a lot in a Greek word, it's because it's probably a long one. But anyhow, this word actually means united with others in the way that you think. So that's why it's represented in the English here as be of one mind. We're called as believers to have a united way of thinking. That means to have biblical priorities. 
so that I could sort of pull all the Christians in the room aside, give you each a life scenario. I give the same scenario to each of you independently. And I say, now, how do you think you should handle this? And that we as Christians, we may not all say exactly the same thing, but we'll say something that ends up being like, wow, you all have basically the same principles guiding you in deciding how you should handle life. So we have that one mind attitude. It's not just a fellowship. It's a, um, given the random situations of life, Christians should have the same basic reaction to those different situations. However, it seems to me that some believers tend to be on the unchristian side of just about any issue. And you'll find it's the same believers. There's just like this particular Christian you know just happens to be on the unbiblical side of just about every argument. They're the opposite of being like-minded. And we're not to be like them because we ultimately want to have the mind of Christ. We We want to unite in his opinions about things and in his views. Barna, the research group, they did a 2013 survey of United States Christians. And it was a worldview survey of those who were self-professed born-again Christians. So that definitely narrows the category down. Could be anybody who says, I'm a born-again Christian. Um, Check this out. Asked whether or not they believed in absolute moral truth, only 46% of them said, yes, we do. Only 46%. Now, philosophically the irony is to not believe in absolute truth is philosophically like like such utter foolishness because it's impossible either there are no morals or there exists morality in which case there's absolute moral truth you can't there's no like middle ground between the two where there's moral values but they're not they're not absolutely true that just doesn't make any sense but forget that. It's a Christian worldview thing, right? Like there's right and there's wrong. This is why Jesus had to go to the cross. This is part of our Christian worldview. They were asked, um, is the Bible accurate? And listen to how vaguely they put it, how, how softly. They didn't put like the super strong conservative view on it. They just said, is the Bible accurate in all the principles it teaches? Not even all the things it proclaims, but all of the principles it teaches. 79% said yes. Yeah, that's much better. But how can 79% say the Bible's accurate and only 46 say there's absolute moral truth? This just represents we believe the Bible, but we don't know what it teaches. <laughs> it's just kind of odd, right? They were asked, is Satan a real person or force? Either one, just in case they were, you know, going to try to figure out some other way of explaining him. But is Satan a real person or a real force? Only 40% said yes. Of those that were surveyed. Then they were said, um, asked this, is it impossible to earn your way to heaven through good behavior? Is it impossible to earn your way to heaven through good behavior? 47% said yes. You're like, born again. You keep using that word. But I do not think it means what you think it means. <laughs> this is just what? 62% said they strongly believe that Jesus lived a sinless life. 62. Now, how can 79% of the people think that the Bible's accurate, but only 62 think Jesus lived a sinless life? And only 47 think that it's impossible to earn your way to heaven through good works, and only 40% think that Satan's even a real person or force, yet the Bible's accurate. Like, that's, it just, here's the problem. 
it's it's an unchristian worldview in a Christian, or at least a Christian by name. I'm not judging whether they're saved or not. Like, I don't even know. I mean, these are just statistics. There aren't really people we're talking about. We're just talking about numbers here. But but you've got here someone who's like, I'm a believer, but they have not got a believer's mind. And so their mind is is deluded. And you guys know, you've run into this, you've talked to people before, where you, you someone's talking, they're like, da-da-da, and you're like, oh, they just said something so wacky and so unchristian. Lord, give me wisdom on how I should respond now. Do I just say like, hey, um, that was actually what Satan said. Like, you know, <laughs> like what do I say to the thing that they just said? Well, one of the issues that keeps us back here is this worldview issue of tolerance. Um, tolerance, it used to be back in the day, tolerance meant disagreeing with somebody without being violent or having unnecessary opposition to them. So tolerance would be like, say, someone says, I think that um, um, like Jar Jar Binks is the best thing to ever happen to Star Wars, and you choose not to strangle them because of your tolerant behavior. So you're, I mean, you're wrong, but I'll tolerate you. <laughs> that's, that's tolerance, right? But nowadays, tolerance means agreeing with the other person. I mean, that's how the word is used in, in colleges and in schools and stuff like that. It means agreeing. Now, this is silly, right? You go, well, I think Jesus is the only way. Yes, well, well but, but wait a minute. Wait a minute. I, I have a different religion, and I think I have a different way to heaven. Oh, no, I believe that you have that way, and that's your way, and that works for you. But Jesus is the only way for me. And it's just this, this kind of like, what does that even mean? You know, because now we have this, there isn't even absolute truth about things. There isn't even truth anymore. That's what the new tolerance means. Um, but the truth is, it's silly because you can't tolerate something unless you disagree. Agreement is agreement, not tolerance. The only potential time for tolerance is when I actually don't agree with you. It's just, it's so weird how this is like a controversial issue in some circles. But in the biblical worldview, in the Christian worldview, tolerance is something where we basically go, I'm going to let God judge you for that. I mean, that's the Christian view of tolerance. It's, okay, well, I'm not going to try to bring down the wrath upon that person. I'm going to just let this happen. And God, you can deal with them. You can fix that situation. You can handle that. Um, that's our view of tolerance. But we don't, we don't ignore wrong behavior or wrong attitudes or wrong beliefs. We, in fact, we should call them out if we care about the people in a loving way and God's timing. And we obviously don't call out everything we see because um, what kind of monster would that make us? <laughs> uh, well, a Christian worldview, though, it's not just about theology because that's what we're talking about here is a worldview. So being of one mind, I think, actually means us having a Christian worldview. Uh, but it's not just about theology. It's actually also about character. And so that's why he goes on having one mind. And then he says being compassionate for another, having compassion one for another. Sometimes we miss this. Uh, guys like me who love apologetics and love theology, it, it's easy to like get caught up in these things and then you're off telling someone about your apologetics or your theology, but you're not having a Christ-like attitude or character toward them while you do it. Then you have the other side where they, they get that it's all about character and then they just think like theology, like as a friend of mine once said, who's Theo and why do I need to study a him? <laughs> And I was like, Theo means God. Um, but anyhow, this word um, in, the, in this passage says, having compassion for one another, it's the word sympathes. That's actually the Greek word. Can you imagine what that would be in the English? Having sympathy for one another, right? So having sympathy for one another, which means to feel what other people feel. 
That's this having compassion. This is different than tolerance. Because sympathy never compromises my values. The role of sympathy in my relationship with someone is to just care. I just care. I just care that you're struggling. I care that you're going through a hard time. I have some sympathy. I feel something of what you're feeling. So I don't excuse what you're going through. Someone says like, I turned my back on God when, when I lost my son. And you lost your son the way I did. And you would understand. And I go, I understand that that must have been so hard. Like, ah, my heart hurts just hearing that story. Now, it doesn't excuse turning your back on the one who can comfort you. But it helps me understand what was going on. Like, I have some sympathy here for you. The sympathy is a good thing. We should have this sympathy. I like how Romans puts it. Romans 12. In fact, why don't you guys turn there real quick? This is just such a great verse. Um, When I first read it, when I was studying Romans years ago, I didn't really understand how to apply it. I read this and thought, I just don't get it. But having having been there, not only in situations where I felt grief, but having been there at like, I don't know how many funerals and how many hard times or how many hospital beds now, I, I get what it means. Uh, Romans twelve fifteen says, Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. To rejoice with those who rejoice, to weep with those who weep, this is what it means about having compassion or, or allow me to feel what you're feeling. And this, there's a fancy term for this. It's called emotional intelligence. Have you heard that term before? This is, this is Smart people like to come up with new terms to describe things that everybody already knows. But <laughs> basically the term is, is referencing sympathy. It's the idea that like if I showed you a picture of someone who has an emo- a certain emotion on their face, like how many people could actually even identify what emotion that is? If they looked at a picture and were like, that person's angry, that person's sad, you know, that person, they're despondent. This one's depressed. This one's cold. This one's brooding. I mean, like, these are just, do you catch these differences? So that when someone walks in the room, one person notices their clothes, somebody else notices their their countenance. You know, and that's what the, the Bible uses the word countenance to describe this. Like, what's my, how am I doing? <laughs> you know what I mean? That kind of thing. And to be able to have sympathy is just to sort of observe and then take like a little piece of how they feel and l- allow my heart to to sense that as well, I think is the idea. This is actually a, a world a Christian worldview thing that we would have this sympathy so that we can care for what they're going through. Now, I, I hate to harp, but I just want to mention this because I do think it's really important. He says for us to have compassion for one another. The one another here is not just human to human. He's applying it Christian to Christian. That's not because we don't care about the world, but Peter just assumes that you and me as believers our general realm of, of um, people interaction is in the Christian realm. That we are in, it's just assumed that you're in fellowship. It's just assumed that you're, in, you're regularly encountering other believers. And so we're to have compassion one to another. Plus I can't, of course, hold the world to the same standard that Christians are called to here. But the thing is that we are to sort of put believers in a closer place to our hearts. You know, and just be like, wow, but they're a believer. So I, I know I've seen so many times where believers will, they'll outreach to the world and they have this massive amount of tolerance for the world. 
and zero tolerance for believers. They criticize believers on their social media, in their conversations. They criticize generically believers. Christians, some Christians are so stupid. And da, 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 da. But then with the world, they're like, well, what do you expect? And you almost feel like if they had a friend that got saved, that all of a sudden that friend would move into a new category in their mind called wrath and judgment. <laughs> And their friend would be like, you treated me nicer when I wasn't a, b- a believer, you know. And we just don't want to be like that. But, but to have that sympathy one toward another, to feel what other people feel. This is a, actually a really great act of love because it requires me to take how I'm feeling and put it on the shelf. You've had this happen where someone's like, they come and they tell you what's going on in their life. And you're thinking, but I wanted to tell you what was going on in mine. And you're like, I guess that's not going to happen now. But that's just... We're just following the Lord in that. You know, we're just honoring Christ by having that sympathy just to feel how others feel and, and sense what they're going through. To to draw our circle a little bigger than than in our immediate small cluster of people that maybe we live with, but go a little bit bigger than that. I remember hearing um one time uh I saw a couple arguing and they were having the weirdest argument. It was about whose back hurt more. <laughs> I'm sure many couples have had this before. It's just a weird argument, though, to think about it, right? Oh, one of them said, man, my back really hurts. And the other one was like, oh, my back really hurts. And the other one said, well, I've been sitting on that desk working on that computer all day long. And he was like, oh, yeah, well, I've been on my knees at my work all day long installing things in people's homes. And she's like, yeah, but you don't work as many hours as I – and they're just like going back and forth about how like – and I was sitting there and I'm thinking, they both just want the other one to go, "Oh." You know what I mean? And just to give them some sympathy. They're just like, just please, somebody give me. And if either of them would do this, the other would probably reciprocate, you know, and it would just help the relationship to stay healthy. But, um, but yeah, it's just the irony of it is that um, those who refuse to have sympathy for others end up with the least for themselves as well. <laughs> so then we're told uh, we should love as brothers, love as brothers. And this, this is the word uh, Philadelphoi. Um, it's Philadelphos, you may have heard that, that's a great, this is me, Philadelphia is just the plural for that, Philadelphia, br- brothers, love as brothers, brotherly love, phileo, br- love, uh, Delphos is, is brothers, and this specifically means Christian brothers, to love as brothers is specifically, again, we're dealing with the Christians, the Christians loving one another, caring for one another deeply, 1 John 5, 1, it says this, whoever believes that Jesus the Christ is born of God, And everyone who loves him who begot, that would be God, also loves him who is begotten by him. So that if you love God, you will love his people. You you will. You will. Now, that doesn't mean necessarily that we'll love each other enough, and which is why we're told to love as brothers, and it's reinforced. But there's an emphasis, again, on Christians loving Christians. Why? Because I don't think Satan is attacking believers in their love for the world. I think the enemy's attacking us from loving each other because if he can pull that down, everything else falls apart. I think that this would be the place where he wants, we're not ignorant of his devices. The scripture says, and those devices are to cause division to separate us from our relationship with God and in our relationships with one another. It's, I know it's on my heart at Hosanna to create opportunities for fellowship, to spend time connecting with people, to see people make friendships. One of the biggest things I want to see with our youth is that, they build Christian friendships in and amongst their own peers, you know, Christian friendships. They won't be perfect, but that they will be believers who, who connect and love one another. It's so important. You could think of how the Christian friendships in your life have blessed you. 
So just a note. I remember telling a, a couple brothers one time that, that we were supposed to have brotherly love, and they looked at each other and laughed because they're brothers. <laughs> and I was like, okay, maybe we should qualify this brotherly love because we're to love as brothers ought to love, <laughs> not as they necessarily do. Now, brothers, brotherly love is an interesting thing because brothers are basically committed to one another regardless. You know, it not to, not to like, it's, it's not just the I got your back, bro. It's a little bit better than that. It's a sense of I'm still committed to you as my brother. Even though you mess up or you fail, you're still my brother. You're still my brother. You're still family. You're still in my heart. And I still am committed to you. There's an idea of acceptance that comes there. An idea that they could call on each other for help at any time, day or night, that sort of thing. Um, and there's just a general concern that they have for one another. And I think there's tons of believers out there, maybe that are listening or maybe watching these videos right now that are just starving for fellowship and they don't realize how much they're starving for it because they've lived so long malnourished without the fellowship that they don't realize how much it's missing. They need fellowship. And I think the key to getting fellowship is offering fellowship. Um, The key to friendship, offering friendship, and the same with this. It's that one time I had a guy call our church and he asked, because the church he come from, he said, was unloving. So he wanted to know if our church was loving. And it was such a strange question. You know, like, well, is your church loving? And I thought, yeah. <laughs> what was to say? Yep. Yeah, we're a loving church. Come on down. You know, like, come check it out. And he goes, okay, because the last church I went to wasn't loving. And I thought, okay. He called to complain about his last church, I think. I think that's what it was. And so he kind of is going on about that. And I was like, I was like, man, we're a loving church. I said, but that doesn't mean that no one will ever offend you. It doesn't mean that no one will rub you the wrong way. I said, but, but if I can encourage you, because I talked to him for a while on the phone. I said, if I can just encourage you with one thing is God didn't call you to be loved. He called you to love. You should go, you should pick a church and then just choose to love those people and just stay there and be a blessing. And, um, what was interesting was how much he didn't want to hear that. Because many believers would hear that and be like, yeah, that's good advice. Oh, yeah, we should do that totally. But those who fight and kick against it, it's because that's a, that's a stronghold that you need to break that on your own life and start loving others. We are not called to get love. God never says, if you really love Jesus, then other people should love you really, really well. It just, you know, he, it's, it's always a one-sided call. I love others without requiring requiring them to love me to love his brothers to just have that constant love we're also called here in the same verse 8 to be tender-hearted to be tender-hearted so after being uh, told to be sympathetic which means like to feel what you're feeling i'm then called to be tender-hearted which is a little which is similar right but I always look for what are the differences there. And I think the idea of tender heart, if I could summarize it, is that we should have soft hearts. My heart should be soft. My skin should be thick. This is, this is what is necessary to follow Jesus. <laughs> I need soft heart and thick skin. I am hard to offend, right? But it is easy for me to love people. Easy for me to extend that love. It tends to be one way or the other. We tend to either have soft skin and thick hearts or soft hearts and thick skin. This is the way it tends to be. And those who find themselves the most wounded, most frequently wounded, who are like always getting offended by people all the time, are usually the most unloving people. Not that they're 
purposely intentionally hateful they just tend to not show very much love because they're obsessed with their own well-being all the time you know about their own offense and like well they didn't remember my name or they didn't look at me or they did look at me you know it's just these these are the thoughts that are obsessively in their minds but we're just we're called to be tender-hearted tender-hearted and um and not to just take easy offense but rather to quickly love to quickly and easily love other people and we will get hurt when we love, but when we get over that, it liberates us. So we're also called to be courteous, the last thing there on the list. To be courteous. I like uh, what one commentary said. I'm just going to read it to you because I thought it was a good description of what this word means. He said, genuine Christian politeness, not the tinsel of the world's politeness stamped with unfeigned love on one side and humility on the other side where it's just my politeness is to make me look good. But the oldest manuscripts read, humble-minded. It is slightly different from humble in that it marks a conscious effort to be truly humble. So this courteousness where I sort of allow others, oh, you can go first. Oh, no, go ahead. Like just, just a genuine, nice courtesy towards other people that is marked from a simple attempt to be humble and follow Jesus. That's it. I think that many people struggle to define this kind of humility. Have you guys heard definitions for humility? You've probably heard like three or four over time. I've heard humility is an accurate self-image. I think that that's true, but what's an accurate (laughs) self-image? So it's kind of one of those definitions that's true, but only if you know what it means. Um, You know, that that humility is um, thinking more of others and less of yourself, or humility is just thinking less about yourself in general, just not even thinking of yourself. You're you're just thinking of others and You don't occur to you as much. That would be humility. But actually, Peter in verse 9 gives us some really good examples of humility. So here's humility. Here's, I think, a good definition of humility. Straight out of the Bible. 1 Peter here in verse 9 of chapter 3. Not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. It has been said that the test of servanthood is when someone treats you like a servant. That's that's the test. Someone acts, hey, hey, over here, fix this, do this thing. Okay. And you're like, oh, offended. They just, they weren't like, oh, oh, sir, would you mind over here, please? You know, and like, oh, yes, I'm very servant-minded, you know. But rather when I'm treated like one. Well, when I'm treated evilly, badly, do what do I do? Do I give evil for evil, revile for revile? What do I do? This is not here... This don't give evil for evil or, you know, don't, uh, two wrongs don't make a right is the, is the basic concept here. But it's not about government not punishing crime. So I can't look up at the judge in court and say, your honor, look, I know I robbed that lady. But you know, the Bible says you're not to return evil for evil. So you really shouldn't lock me up away from my family and away from my job in return for what I did to her because that would be two evils. Like this is completely wrong. That's just called justice. We're talking here about not government. It's, it's, it's about just a person lashing out because they were hurt. That's the evil for evil we're talking about. So it's not about that. It's not about parent, parenting or discipline. Parents are, in fact, called to discipline. They're called to, to, to tell their kids, no, you can't do that. Or here's the punishment because you did that. That's, that's a good godly parent thing to do. Um, but if they're doing it because they're angry or if they're sinning against their kids because they made, their kids made them mad. In fact, if anger is my motive as a parent, then I'm, I'm in the flesh. 
a lot. And that's going to, well, that's just, that's unfortunate. That's certainly not God's way of doing it. Um, otherwise he would have struck me dead many times over. No, it's, um, it's simply not about doing evil when evil's been done to me, not taking revenge. Or I like the, the analogy of kids playing tag, right? They run up and tag somebody and they yell at them real quick. No tag backs. Because the first thing you want to do when someone tags you, like hurts you, offends you, they say something, they give you a look, or perhaps they touch a sore spot in your life somehow, is to just yeah, hit them back really quick. Now, my gift is gab, right? My, my words. I'm good with words, or at least gooder than some. <laughs> and it's my natural tendency to want to use my mouth to bite at somebody who hurts or offends me. I'm fairly good at it. And that's not a compliment to myself it's as much as it is that's a sad thing. Like I, I, I had gotten fairly good. I mean I could have some, some bully kid does something and I could just just make him look like a fool you know, with my words. But that's exactly the kind of thing. So just to hold your tongue and not say it back. Even though I, oh, I got dirt on you. Oh, I could say this and I could do that and I could say this. Or, or I just want to punch the person that punches me or wound the person who wounds me, but simply to not do this. I think this is an ex- a great example, a great example of humility because that takes humility. Well, I'm not going to let people walk all over me and I'd just be like, why not? Well, I'm better than that. I'm more important than that. I'm more valuable than that. So you're proud. <laughs> But as a Christian, yes, there are times where I should just just be quiet and just take it and just go through it. Just experience this unpleasant experience and not give evil for evil. And then it says not reviling for reviling. And I think that that's actually the really the regular battle, right? Because that's when you revile me, you just, you know, someone on the road, you know, gives me the, tells me I'm number one with their middle finger and... And I'm upset or frustrated and I want to do something to revile them. Maybe I'm not even doing it where they can hear me. I just want to say it in my car. But my natural tendency, the sinful man wants to revile when I'm reviled. It wants to wound when I'm wounded, to hurt when I'm hurt. And it wants to do it back twice as hard. But not to do that. That is our calling as Christians. And that will keep the things that you've earned or worked for in verse 8, right? To have one mind, to have a brotherly love, to have sympathy towards one another. It will keep that if I can avoid when my brother hurts me, hurting them, hurting them back. And uh, it's not easy, that's for sure. But that's definitely what we're called to do. This is a big deal. I think the best place to apply this is just in the home. Is just right there in the home with my loved ones, with those who I live with, for me and my bride. That, you know, when she looks at me and says, "You look so stupid," you know, I'm just kidding. She doesn't do that. <laughs> but I, instead of looking back at her and and saying something mean, you know, that I just go, Duh? "No," <laughs> but I just I just let it roll off. Just just let it roll off and be like, it's not like, well, that didn't affect me at all. You know, I don't care what you say, but rather like, hey, that hurt, but I'm not going to revile back. I'm not going to attack back is the idea. Um, and then I love, the, I love the encouragement at the end. He says, knowing that you were called to this. What? <laughs> I'm being reviled? I was called to be reviled? I'm called to reviling. What's your ministry, Mike? Uh, I get reviled. I have the ministry of reviling. 
No, just, it's a passive ministry. I just receive revilings, but I don't get to do it back. That's my ministry. But he says it, knowing that you were called to this. It's not that you're called to a ministry of reviling, but rather that there will be instances, and what you are called to is to not revile back. That's our calling, just like Jesus didn't. And then he says that you may inherit a blessing. So there's a blessing. There is a blessing. But the blessing doesn't come unless I do the part of the verse I skipped, as many of us do, right? Not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing. My job is not done when I simply hold my tongue. I am to turn to those who hurt me and bless them. Bless them. I know how hard this is because I've tried to make a practice of doing it. And you're like, I'm not really feeling the blessing right now. And that's when I stop and pray for that person. Lord, I pray that you would bless them. I pray that you would help them through with the things that they're going through. And I start lifting them up in prayer. Now, your prayers will be informed depending on the situation. If it was Adolf Hitler and I'm praying for him, I'm not like, prosper his kingdom and may he never lose power. No, I'd be like, I pray you'd bless him, Lord, by helping him come to realize how wicked his sin is that he might come to the Savior, Jesus Christ. So now that would be the biggest blessing possible for him. I mean, the worst prayer would be let him die in his sins. And go to hell forever. I mean, that would be the worst prayer. So, I mean, you can pray for a genuine blessing that isn't necessarily, Lord, empower them to continue, you know, hurting people. I don't have to pray for that. Um, and I wouldn't. But, um, and, and we don't have that example. We look at Psalms and stuff like that. You don't have that example of praying that God would empower people to continue doing harm. But I do want to pray for them to have some sense of a blessing, to bless them instead. So I'm not just called to abstain, but the challenge is to not merely ignore, but to bless those very people bother me because you know i'm i'm just the one good person it's everybody else that's just bothering me well yeah but the the beautiful thing is that i inherit a blessing and then he talks about the blessing in verse 10 and 11 so and 12 he says for and he's quoting uh the psalm psalm 32 i believe it is he says he who would love life and see good days let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit let him turn away from evil and do good Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. There's such a beautiful poetry in the Psalms. Like the eyes of the Lord, like he sees the righteous and he's just like, I'm watching you. My my eyes, which which speaks of concerning and care, but his face is against. So it's like his eyes are looking upon the righteous and the wicked. He's like, you know, like like his face is just set against them, like in a, in a very, Glad you're not the wicked way. Um, so the blessing is the basic biblical concept coming from Old Testament all the way through the New is we reap what we sow. And if I return evil for evil, then I will reap back evil as well. But if I return blessing for evil, then I will reap back blessings. I reap what I sow. Let's read the, verse 10. See if you don't catch that. He who would love life and see good days let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. See, it's all advice for how to get that good, that good stuff, life and good days. It's the same thing we see throughout the book of Proverbs, throughout the book of Psalms. We see it exampled several times in the scriptures. But I want to give a word of advice here. This is where we don't, we don't want to make one of two errors. And we're reading, say, Proverbs, for instance, is thinking that Proverbs is the way things always happen. 
And that, that would be one mistake, thinking Proverbs is how it always, always happens. The other mistake would be ignoring it and just making it all about all about heaven. Like it's only, oh, only in heaven do we see that, only in heaven. But Proverbs, I think I would put it this way, Proverbs as, as rules for life is more about principles of living and it's about how things eventually are and generally are. That's why it's the book of wisdom because it gives you wisdom. And to prove that it's not just solid rules for living, it's got this great part where it says, answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. And the next verse says, don't answer a fool according to his folly, lest he despise you. (laughs) And then he turn, or lest you be like him. And there's three different verses that deal with it. But one of them says, to answer him according to his folly. The other one says not to. So what am I supposed to do? The point is, yeah, it's tough dealing with fools. Like, that's the point. Sometimes you are going to answer them according to their folly, and then they might learn. or something. But other times it's like, you know what? Don't say a word because they're just going to turn on you. Or you're going to enter into their own folly by doing it. And um, I just remember one time hearing a, uh, a, uh, a, uh, a guy, he said he was a believer. He did all this kind of weird he just got really weird. He just got really weird. And so what he did was he came up and he said at one point that he was no longer Christian. He didn't believe in all that. And he believed in like the moon goddess or something weird. I mean, it was just out there. And I'm like, the moon? What? And he goes, yeah, well, the Bible, this and that. And I'm like, I've studied that. I know the answer to the challenge he just brought. And I really felt like the Holy Spirit was like, Mike, just hold your tongue. Do not answer. Do not say anything to this guy. And I'm like, but I have the answer. Oh, like, but I know, I know what to say. And so I thought, maybe that's the Lord telling me not to, maybe, you know, it's, I just said, okay. And I spat it out and I'm like, well, da, da, da. And then he just like went off like, like, like projectile vomit, every bad thing he could think to say about the Bible and Jesus and God, because I realized in about in three, four days later when he stopped that what he was doing was he was just trying to irritate us. He was upset about something and he came and found the Christians and he just wanted to irritate us. And so he was just saying things. And so he just went on and on and on. And I was like, yeah, okay, Lord, now I realize why you didn't want me to say anything. You were going to spare me him just spouting all this stuff off. Well, we just got to follow what the scripture says. Um, And Proverbs and Psalms are great passages, especially Proverbs, advice for life. It is what's generally true and it is most certainly what is eventually true. So if you'd love life and see good days, do good and good will happen to you. Generally speaking, it will. And even in those occasions when it doesn't result that way, it will eventually because there's an eternal reward for the things that we're doing. I think the point here is that all of our sacrifices pay off. It's true that things are worth doing just because they're right. But it's also true that there's a blessing at the end. You know, there's, there's like a, uh, there's gold at the end of the rainbow, so to speak for us as believers. And I like that it's good to do just because it's right. And that's a good enough reason, period. But God isn't just content with that. He wants to bless us and bring a reward along with it. And that's a beautiful thing. Verse 13 says this, and who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you are blessed and do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. Do-gooders, goody-two-shoes, as, as they uh, used to call them. <laughs> Nowadays, I don't even know what they call them. 
Um, those who seek to do what is good, they find that they have so many less issues in life. They have less debt issues. They have less like angst and issues with family, issues with those relationships, broken relationships. They just have less of those issues in general. It's just true that like Proverbs 5.22, it says, His own iniquities entrap the wicked man, and he's caught in the cords of his sin. Or like Numbers 32.23, Moses said to the people, Your sin will find you out. Like People generally suffer the consequences of their own sins. You know, the person who chooses a bad lifestyle experiences the results. That's just kind of how it is. But the one that chooses the good lifestyle, the God lifestyle, just takes so many blessings. I'm amazed at how drama-free the life of someone is who follows Jesus. And how then you, you hear someone who comes to you for counsel and they tell you the life they have. And they're just like making ungodly decisions all over the place. And sure enough, they've got massive amounts of ungodly drama in their lives. All kinds of strife. That's the biblical word for drama is strife. <laughs> so you could translate it as drama, I imagine, nowadays. But the old saying is true, right? You lay down with dogs, you get up with fleas. They say that, uh, what is it, like 90% of the wealth is in 10% of the population? Something like that. I don't know. Whatever it is, I don't care. But I think that 90% of the drama is in 10% of the population, too. It's the same people over and over again, and those people have ungodly lifestyles, just like the scripture warned against. Just like Proverbs said, like, don't do this. You're just heaping trouble onto yourself. Don't be the fool, you know. So he's like, verse 13, who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? Like, who's going to come against you because you're like a good husband? Oh, you're a good husband. Oh, you're because you tell the truth, and you work hard at your job. You pay your bills, and you keep your promises. Like, people aren't really going to come against you for this stuff. But on those rare occasions, verse 14, even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you're blessed. Do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. That's what God said to Isaiah. You are blessed. You are blessed. Even if you're suffering for righteousness. In Matthew 5, Jesus gave the Sermon on the Mount. After the, at the end of the Beatitudes, the last one, he says, um, that they'll be blessed if they're suffering. And uh, then he concludes it by saying, blessed are you when they revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now our reward in heaven is not really described in great detail in the Bible, like all that that reward represents. But here's what we're told. We're told that the reward, the right response to the reward, should be exceeding gladness. It's like you're watching a TV show, you know, or a program, and they're watching something else. And you don't see the thing they're watching, you just see their faces. And as they're all watching it, they go, you know, they all get excited. And then you're like, well, I don't know what that is, but it must be something really good. And this is what we're, we're not being told exactly what the reward is, but we're told the response to the reward. We're seeing the faces light up and Jesus goes, oh, you're suffering for my name's sake. You're being put down because of your faith in Christ, because you're obedient to him. Someone's taking advantage of that. Someone's harming you because you're following me. Oh, be exceedingly glad because you have a great reward for the thing you are experiencing right now. I think that we have largely forgotten about this. 
we have largely ignored this thing that's throughout the scriptures be to be blessed, be excited about the reward that we get. Early persecution in the church, they actually they actually remember what Jesus said. So look at how they respond. They're told in Acts chapter five, like don't don't speak in the name of Jesus anymore. Right? Acts five forty says this, and they agreed with them with him, and when they had called for the apostles and beaten them, they beat them physically, they commanded them they should not speak in the name of Jesus, and they let them go. So they, the apostles, they departed from the presence of the council, crying and whining about their wounds. No, hold on, that's not what it says. They departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for shame for his name. And you're like, why would they rejoice about that? Because they actually believed there were great rewards in store for them that were so much greater than any pain they were experiencing. They actually believed it. That's all it just they actually took Jesus and were like, I think that when he said that, it was true. And so they were rejoicing, like that's all it takes. And daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. And so they just kept on going and they were like, whatever. We're going to follow Jesus. Like, oh, you beat me. You're like, oh, well, Lord, you counted me worthy to suffer for your name's sake. I know that there's glory coming for, the, you know, for all the gore, there is more glory. You can make that work somehow. All right, verse 15. Um, oh, excuse me. In verse 14, there's a really cool thing here at the end. He says, and do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. Those are two different words there. Don't be afraid and don't be troubled. I think we have these two dangers that come in when, when someone's like, don't speak in the name of Jesus. Don't pray in the name of Jesus. Don't tell others about Jesus. You're going to get fired. You're going to do this. You're going to do that, whatever. Or we're getting threatened, you know. He says, don't be afraid of their threats. Fear is something that is actually healthy. I mean, fear generally is a healthy thing. It should keep us from doing things that are bad ideas. I mean, fear is the is the last ditch, like, please don't do that, uh, that your body finally gives you right before the bad thing happens. <laughs> Fear is like where you're like driving and you're, and you're like, oh, 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 we don't care where we are. And they're like, you know, I don't think we're really in a very good neighborhood anymore. Maybe we should turn around and go somewhere else um, to look for street tacos or something like that. And so you turn around and you head off somewhere else. And that's, that's fear. Fear is healthy. But unhealthy fear keeps you from doing things you should do. Or at least that's the danger, Right. So that's why we're told, don't be afraid. So that the one danger is that we would hear the threats of the world and actually get quiet as Christians. Because they will not persecute us so much if we just get quiet about our faith. But we cannot do that. The second thing is to not be troubled. I think being afraid causes me to be quiet. I still have faith. I still believe. I still have all those confidences in the Lord. But I'm just quiet about it because I'm scared of what might happen to me. But to be troubled is to actually question the goodness of obedience. I think that's what it means here. I think that when I'm troubled, I'm going, Lord, I was obeying you and I was doing what you wanted and now I'm suffering for it. I'm not so sure that your will is as good as I previously thought. Now I'm troubled by that stuff, by what I'm going through. And that would be, yeah, questioning the goodness of that obedience. And that usually comes from false expectations. When people think, if I follow Jesus, then I'm going to get a promotion. You might get fired. You know, if I follow Jesus then certainly I'm going to, I'm going to get this or I'm going to get that. I'm going to have all these wonderful things coming my way 
Well, I mean, if you do good, good things will probably happen to you. But there's occasions where that's not what happens because someone evil gets involved and they come down on you. And if that happens, we are just to uh, keep on going, keep on trucking, so to speak. Um, Because we have a great reward. So then we get to verse 15. And this will be our last verse for tonight. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. So don't be afraid. Don't be troubled. Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. This, This term, sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, it actually is basically saying sanctify God as the Lord in your heart. That He's the one in charge. I follow Jesus. And this is what kept the early church on track. Like they're like, I'm going to follow Jesus into the fire, into whatever it takes. He's my Lord. I will obey him rather than you. This is ultimate submission to God above all else. Other than that, this verse is the verse that every apologetics ministry in the world has as their verse. (laughs) Everyone I've ever seen, right? It's always 1 Peter 3.15 and for good reason, right? Always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. That word defense, give a defense. It's the word apologian, right? And that word, um, it means defense. But the idea is it's not just an answer. Like you ask me a question, I give you an answer. What time is it? Oh, it's like 622 or something. Rather, it's defense as in I'm in court and I've falsely been accused and now I'm making my case to prove my innocence. So it's, it's actually like a, a careful defense. I'm giving a, a reasoned set of arguments or reasons for my innocence in court. That's how it would be used. So as a Christian, this really is the apologetics verse, among others. But there are many who say that apologetics is unnecessary. And one of the things I've heard the most is apologetics doesn't work. I've heard it many times. People don't get saved from apologetics I remember hearing uh, who was it? William Lane Craig talk about this. He'd heard this so many times. People say, people don't get saved from apologetics. People don't get saved from apologetics. And he, of course, has an apologetics ministry. And he was like, one day he's like, you know, I heard that saying enough times that one day I thought, wait a minute, that's not true. I get letters all the time from people that get saved because of apologetics. <laughs> Tons of people get saved from apologetics. C.S. Lewis got saved from apologetics. We're... Uh, Greg uh, Kokel's ministry has impacted lots of people's lives who've given their lives to the Lord. Um, gosh, I have a list somewhere, but it's not in my brain at the moment. Of people who've given their lives to Christ because of apologetics, giving a reasonable answer for why should I believe? Why should I believe? And there's a reasonable answer. Some people say it doesn't work, but it, it clearly does work. It's very impactful. Um, apologetics affects many, many people's lives all the time. It's a good thing for us to do. We're certainly called to in the scripture. Some people, though, they see apologetics as like an offense to the gospel. Like it's either you preach the gospel or you have apologetics. And I'm like, that's, that's like weird. That's like saying either you have Monday or Tuesday. It's like, why can't we have both and like have a whole week of stuff? Like it's what's called a false dichotomy. It's like, look, are we going to preach the gospel or are we going to eat breakfast? Like, but can't I eat breakfast and preach the gospel? Like, why can't we do both? Apologetics is so often the crowbar that breaks open the door so that the gospel can get into people's lives. It is so often the very thing that opens the door and shows people that our faith is reasonable. We see that Jesus did apologetics. 
He did it. If you read the Gospels carefully, you'll see Jesus all the time. He says things like, don't believe me just because I say so. Believe me because of the works. Believe me because of the statements in the Old Testament that prove who I am. And he's telling them, research it and think about it and be there. The Bereans in Acts are lauded. They're lifted up because they went and studied the scriptures to see if these things were really the case. To study the, why should I believe? Peter talks about it. The more sure word of prophecy. We've talked about that already. Um, Paul did apologetics. In fact, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it's the evidence for the resurrection passage where Paul's literally giving an apologetic for why they should believe in the resurrection. In fact, we still go to that today as part of our argument for the evidence of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So there's there's a long history in the church going back to, I don't know, um, the Old Testament, (laughs) dealing with apologetics where God says, hey, I'll prove to you that I'm the real God. I will give you prophecy about what's going to happen before it happens. And then you'll know it's me. Isaiah, right? And so apologetics clearly from the scriptures is a, it's a good, wonderful thing. But I think a lot of people feel intimidated by the subject of apologetics because they feel like they have to know everything. And so they kind of, they're, they're on or off. They're hot or cold. It's like, I'm either going to do tons of apologetics or none. And this is really not necessary. We're not told to be ready to answer any question on earth. We're just told to be ready to give a defense, a reason for the faith that we have in Christ. So I would say apologetics starts with this, answering this question. Why do you believe in Jesus Christ? And answering it reasonably. That's it. Start there. Start there. Come up with an answer for that question. to Give a reason for your faith. And then if you encounter questions where people um, ask you things and you don't know how to answer it, well, you've got plenty of time to look it up or check it out or say, hey, I'll give that some thought. I haven't heard that before. That's an interesting idea. Pray for wisdom from the spirit at the time. And you'll slowly add more and more answers. Some people are more apologetically minded and they'll probably have more answers than others who aren't as much. But every believer should be able to answer the question, why do you believe in Jesus? Why should I believe in Jesus? They should be able to answer that. I mean, that's just part of sharing our faith. So I think we shouldn't feel intimidated. Um, but that's part of loving God with all of our mind. Loving God with all of our mind is, is just, you're not called to love God with all of Einstein's brain. You're called to love him with all of your mind. So if you go, well, I don't understand 90% of apologetics. And you're like, great. So you got 10% though, right? Do you, did you get the 10? <laughs> did you get the 10? Then If all you get is 10, then just get the 10. And have that ready. And be like, Lord, you can use me. I'm ready with what I can. So we're just to be reasonable. In fact, I think that study is not the number one thing that an apologist needs. It's the ability to just be reasonable. To just be a reasonable person. To just think. I remember someone telling me they thought they could explain away the existence of God with string theory. Now, string theory is this this really complicated explanation of the existence of the universe and i'll give you the the like third grader version right where it's basically there's these tiny little strings that you can't see you can't really detect but they're there and they vibrate and that sort of creates everything else that we see so now we have an explanation these strings that create everything else that we see and they said see so then now i don't need god to create everything because the strings created everything and I thought, well, I, you know, at the time I heard this, I thought, I don't know much about string theory. I've only heard of it on some sci-fi show I watched. And so that's interesting. Never heard it. Can't really comment on it. But I do have one question. Yeah, who made the strings? <laughs> You've just pushed it back 
one step, you haven't actually answered any questions. You know, it's like say, who pushed the first domino? Ah, there was another domino before that first domino. So then who pushed the first first domino? You know what I mean? It's like, it's just, you've got to answer the question. And so really you don't have to study and be an expert at everything. You just got to be reasonably minded where you can listen carefully to what people say and then go, hmm, what is that really, what are they really saying? What does that really imply? And not get lost in all the, all the millions of details. Um, and then we're told to do this with meekness and fear. To give an answer, a defense to everyone who asks you for a, a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Meekness, my favorite definition of meekness is me. Ich. That's my favorite definition because it's an awareness that I am like, oh, Lord, I get it. I am, I am a, I'm a man who has struggles, who has blind spots, who has issues, who's got all this stuff. And so I'm just going to walk in a humbleness to, towards people. Because the danger of the moment you engage in apologetics and knowing the answers to all the questions is that you get arrogant. You just get proud. And you start to lean on your own understanding. That is a real danger. Apologists need to constantly be aware of this because they get so used to coming up with answers to every question. But the moment you get arrogant, you start to get the wrong answers too. And you start to walk in that kind of stuff. And an arrogant apologist is not a complete apologist. The, the last thing we're told to be there is to be meek and also to have fear. And that fear is a respectful attitude to have a, uh, just a sense of respect towards other people. To not be disrespectful to them. I, I try to be respectful to the people I engage in. I do the apologetic stuff all the time online. I try to be respectful even when people are calling me names. You know, I say, hey, can we just have like a normal conversation where we don't call each other names? <laughs> just to, I don't respond by like, well, you're this or you're that. I mean, but this is the full ambassador is these elements. A godly life, we already talked about that in First Peter. A humble and loving conduct towards others where I'm, I'm humble, I'm meek, even though I might have the right answer, I'm having it in the right way. And then three, a reasonable mind where I give you reasons. I don't just preach at you. I also reason with you. I think that, that that's it. Too often, we pick one of those and we focus on it and we ignore the rest. But when a godly life, a humble and, um, and meek, respectful attitude, and a very reasonable mind as we try to outreach and share Christ with other people. So, let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word. We pray that you'd help us to apply it. Um, there's a lot and a lot of different stuff in the content from tonight's message, Lord. And our prayer is whatever nuggets you want us to take home uh, to apply into our own lives first, let that be what sticks in our minds. Even as we leave this place, that we'd have that stick in our hearts and minds to follow you in that area. In Jesus' name, amen.